Books one and two of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume three, Part the third. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume three, Part three, by François René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Teixeira de Matos. Books one and two, The Last Days of the Empire. Youth is a charming thing. It sets out at life's commencement crowned with flowers, as did the Athenian fleet going to conquer Sicily, and the delightful plains of Enna. The prayers offered aloud by the priest of Neptune, libations are made from goblets of gold. The crowd lining the coast unites its invocations to those of the pilot. The paean is sung while the sail is unfurled to the rays and to the breath of dawn. Alcibiades, arrayed in purple and beautiful as love, is noticeable on the triremes, proud of the seven chariots which he has launched on the Olympian race-course. But scarce is the isle of Alcinous passed, when the illusion vanishes. Alcibiades, banished, goes to grow old far away from his country, and to die pierced with arrows on Timandra's bosom. The companions of his early hopes, enslaved at Syracuse, have nothing to alleviate the weight of their chains but a few verses of Euripides. You have seen my youth quitting the shore. It had not the beauty of the pupil of Pericles, educated upon the knees of Aspasia, but it had the same morning hours, and longings, and dreams, God knows. I have described those dreams to you. Today, returning to land after many an exile, I have nothing more to tell you but truths, sad as my age. If at times I still sound the chords of the lyre, these are the last harmonies of the poet seeking to cure himself of the wounds caused by the arrows of time, or to console himself for the slavery of years. You know how changeable was my life during my condition as a traveller and a soldier. You know of my literary existence from 1800 to 1813, the year in which you left me at the Valais aux Loups, which still belonged to me when my political career opened. We are about to enter into that career, before penetrating into it I must needs revert to the general facts which I have overlooked while occupying myself solely with my works and my personal adventures. Those facts are of Napoleon's making. Let us therefore pass to him. Let us speak of the huge edifice which was being built outside my dreams. I now turn historian without ceasing to be an autobiographer. A public interest is about to support my private confidences. My own smaller recitals will group themselves around my narrative. When the war of the revolution broke out, the kings did not understand it. They saw a revolt where they ought to have seen the changing of the nations, the end and the commencement of a world. They flattered themselves that for them there was a question only of enlarging their states, with a few provinces taken from France. They believed in bygone military tactics, in bygone diplomatic treaties, in cabinet negotiations, and conscripts were about to set Frederick's grenadiers to flight. Monarchs were about to come to sue for peace in the anterooms of a few obscure demagogues, and awful revolutionary opinion was about to unravel the intrigues of old Europe upon the scaffolds. That old Europe thought it was fighting only France. It did not perceive that a new age was marching upon it. Bonaparte, in the course of his ever-increasing successes, seemed called upon to change the royal dynasties, to make his own the oldest of them all. He had made kings of the electors of Bavaria, Württemberg, and Saxony. He had given the crown of Naples to Murat, that of Spain to Joseph, that of Holland to Louis, that of Westphalia to Jerome. 
His sister, Eliza Bacciocchi, was Princess of Lucca. He, on his own account, was Emperor of the French, King of Italy, in which kingdom were included Venice, Tuscany, Palma, and Piacenza. Piedmont was united to France. He had consented to allow one of his captains, Bernadotte, to reign in Sweden. By the Treaty of the Confederation of the Rhine, he exercised the rights of the House of Austria over Germany. He had declared himself the mediator of the Helvetian Confederation. He had laid Prussia low. Without possessing a bark, he had declared the British Isles in a state of blockade. England, in spite of her fleets, was on the point of not having a port in Europe in which to discharge a bale of merchandise or post a letter. The Papal States formed part of the French Empire. The Tiber was a French department. In the streets of Paris one saw cardinals, half-prisoners, who, putting their heads through the window of their cab, asked, Is this where the King of... lives? No, replied the porter, to whom the question was put. It's higher up. Austria had redeemed herself only by handing over her daughter. The raider of the South demanded Honoria from Valentinian, with half of the provinces of the empire. How had those miracles been worked? What qualities were possessed by the man who gave birth to them? What qualities did he lack for their achievement? I will trace the immense fortune of Bonaparte, who, notwithstanding, passed so quickly that his days fill but a short period of the time covered by these memoirs. Fastidious productions of genealogies, cold disquisitions upon facts, insipid verifications of dates, are the burdens and servitudes of the writer. In the second book of these memoirs you have read, I had then returned from my first exile to Dieppe, I have been permitted to return to my valley. The soil trembles beneath the steps of the foreign soldier. I am writing, like the last of the Romans, to the sound of the barbarian invasion. By day I compose pages as agitated as the events of the day. At night, while the rolling of the distant cannon dies away in my solitary woods, I return to the silence of the years that sleep in the grave, and to the peace of my youngest memories. Those agitated pages which I composed by day were notes relating to the events of the moment which, when collected, formed my pamphlet De Bonaparte et des Bourbons. I had so high an opinion of the genius of Napoleon and the gallantry of our soldiers that an invasion by the foreigner which should be successful in its ultimate result could not enter into my head. But I thought that this invasion, by making France realise the danger to which Napoleon's ambition had brought her, would lead to a movement from within and that the enfranchisement of the French would be worked by their own hands. It was with this idea that I was writing my notes, so that, if our political assembly should stay the march of the Allies, and resolve to sever from a great man who had become a scourge, they should know to whom to resort. The shelter seemed to me to lie in the authority, modified in accordance with the times, under which our ancestors had lived during eight centuries, when, in a storm, one finds nothing within reach, but an old edifice, all in ruins though it be, one retires to it. In the winter of 1813 to 1814, I took an apartment in the Rue de Rivoli, opposite the first gate of the Garden of the Tuileries, before which I had heard the death of the Duc d'Anguien cried. As yet there was nothing to be seen in that street, except the arcades built by the government, and a few houses rising here and there, with their lateral denticulation of projecting stones. It needed nothing less than the spectacle of the calamities weighing on France to maintain the aversion which Napoleon inspired, and at the same time to protect oneself against the admiration which he caused to revive so soon as he acted. He was the proudest genius of action that ever existed. His first campaign in Italy and his last campaign in France, I am not speaking of Waterloo, 
are his two finest campaigns. He was Condé in the first, Turenne in the second, a great warrior in the former, a great man in the latter. But they differed in their results. By the one he gained the empire, by the other he lost it. His last hours of power, all uprooted, all barefoot as they were, could not be drawn from him like a lion's tooth, save by the efforts of the arms of Europe. The name of Napoleon was still so formidable that the hostile armies crossed the Rhine in terror. They unceasingly looked behind them, in order well to assure themselves that their retreat would be possible. Masters of Paris, they trembled yet. Alexander, casting his eyes towards Russia while entering France, congratulated the persons who were able to go away, and wrote his anxieties and regrets to his mother. Napoleon beat the Russians at Saint-Dizier, the Prussians and Russians at Brienne, as though to do honour to the fields in which he had been brought up. He routed the army of Silesia at Montmurray and Champaubert, and a portion of the main army at Montereau. He made head everywhere, went and returned on his steps, repelled the columns by which he was surrounded. The Allies proposed an armistice. Bonaparte tore up the proffered preliminaries and exclaimed, I am nearer to Vienna than the Emperor of Austria is to Paris. Russia, Austria, Prussia, and England, for their mutual consolation, concluded a new treaty of alliance at Chaumont. But in reality they were alarmed at Bonaparte's resistance and were thinking of retreat. At Lyon an army was forming on the Austrian flank. Marshal So was checking the English. The Congress of Châtillon, which was not dissolved until the 18th of March, was still negotiating. Bonaparte drove Blücher from the heights of Crown. The main Allied army had triumphed on the 26th of February at Bar-sur-Aube, thanks only to superiority in numbers. Bonaparte, multiplying himself, had recovered Troyes, which the Allies reoccupied. From Caen he had moved upon Rheims. Tonight, he said, I shall go take my father-in-law at Troyes. On the 20th of March an affair took place near Arsis-sur-Aube. Amid a rolling fire of artillery, a shell having fallen in front of a square of the guards, the square appeared to make a slight movement. Bonaparte dashed towards the projectile, the fuse of which was smoking, and made his horse sniff at it. The shell burst, and the emperor came safe and sound from the midst of the shattered bolt. The battle was to recommence the following day, but Bonaparte, yielding to the inspiration of genius, an inspiration which was none the less fatal, retired in order to bear upon the rear of the confederate troops, separate them from their stores, and swell his own army with the garrisons of the frontier places. The foreigners were preparing to fall back upon the Rhine, when Alexander, by one of these heaven-inspired impulses which change a whole world, took the resolve to march upon Paris, the road to which was becoming free. Napoleon thought he would draw the mass of the enemy after him, and he was followed by only ten thousand men of the cavalry, whom he believed to be the advance guard of the main troops, whereas they masked the real movement of the Prussians and Muscovites. He dispersed those ten thousand horse at Saint-Dizier and Vitry, and then perceived that the great allied army was not behind them. That army, which was flinging itself upon the capital, had before it only Marshals Marmont and Mortier, with about twelve thousand conscripts. Napoleon hurriedly made for Fontainebleau. There, a sainted victim, retiring, had left the requiter and the avenger. Two things in history always go side by side. Let a man enter upon a path of injustice, and he at the same time opens for himself a path of perdition in which, at a given distance, the first road will converge into the second. Men's minds were greatly agitated. The hope of at all costs seeing brought to a close a cruel war which, since twenty years, had been weighing down upon France, sated with misfortune and glory. This hope carried the day, among the masses, over the feeling of nationality. Each one thought of the part he would have to take in the approaching catastrophe. 
Every evening my friends came to talk at Madame de Chateaubriand's to tell and comment upon the events of the day. Messieurs de Fontaine, de Clausel, Joubert, gathered with the crowd of those transient friends whom events bring and events withdraw. Madame la Duchesse de Lévy, beautiful, peaceful, and devoted, whom we shall meet again at Ghent, kept Madame de Chateaubriand faithful company. Madame la Duchesse de Duras was also in Paris, and I often went to see Madame la Marquise de Montcalm, sister to the Duc de Richelieu. I continued to be persuaded, despite the near approach of the battlefields, that the Allies would not enter Paris, and that a national insurrection would put an end to our fears. The obsession of this idea prevented me from feeling the presence of the foreign armies as keenly as I might have done, but I could not keep myself from reflecting upon the calamities to which we had subjected Europe, when I saw Europe bring them back to us. I never ceased working at my pamphlet. I was preparing it as a remedy when the moment of anarchy should come to burst forth. It is not thus that we write nowadays, when we live at our ease, with only a war of broadsheets to fear. At night I turn the key in my lock. I place my papers under my pillow, with two loaded revolvers on my table. I slept between these two muses. My text was in duplicate. I had written it in the form of a pamphlet, which it retained, and in the shape of a speech, differing in some respects from the pamphlet. I thought that, when France rose, they might assemble at the Hôtel de Ville, and I had prepared myself on two topics. Madame de Chateaubriand wrote a few notes at various periods of our common life. Among those notes I find the following paragraph. Monsieur de Chateaubriand was writing his pamphlet de Bonaparte et de Bourbon. If that pamphlet had been seized, the result was not doubtful. The sentence was the scaffold. Nevertheless, the author displayed incredible negligence in concealing it. Often he would go out and leave it on the table. His prudence never went beyond placing it under his pillow, which he used to do before his valet, a very honest fellow, but liable to temptation. As for me, I was in a mortal fright, and so soon as Monsieur de Chateaubriand had gone out, I used to take the manuscript and place it about my person. One day, while crossing the Tuileries, I noticed that I no longer had it, and being sure that I had felt it on leaving the house, I had no doubt that I had lost it on the way. Already I saw the fatal work in the hands of the police, and Monsieur de Chateaubriand arrested. I fell unconscious in the middle of the garden. Some kind people assisted me, and afterwards took me home, which was not far off. What torture, when, on climbing the stairs, I hovered between a fear which was almost a certainty, and a slight hope that I had forgotten to take the pamphlet. As I approached my husband's bedroom, I felt myself fainting once more. I went in at last, nothing on the table. I went up to the bed. I first felt the pillow. I perceived nothing. I lifted it up, and saw the roll of papers. My heart beats whenever I think of it. I have never experienced such a moment of joy in my life. Certainly I can truthfully say that it would not have been so great had I seen myself released at the foot of the scaffold, for after all, it was someone dearer to me than myself whom I saw released from it. How unhappy should I be if I could have caused a moment of trouble to Madame de Chateaubriand. I had nevertheless been obliged to entrust a printer with my secret. He had consented to risk the business. According to the news of the hour, he used to return the half-composed proofs to me, or come to fetch them back, as the sound of the cannon approached or drew further from Paris. I played pitch and toss with my life in this way for nearly a fortnight. The circle was drawing closer around the capital. At every moment we heard of some progress on the part of the enemy. Russian prisoners and French wounded entered promiscuously through the barriers, drawn in carts. Some half-dead fell beneath the wheels, which they stained with their blood. Conscripts called up from the interior crossed the capital in a long file on their way to the armies. At night one heard trains of artillery pass along the outer boulevards, 
and one did not know whether the distant detonations announced the decisive victory or the final defeat. The war at last came and fixed itself outside the barriers of Paris. From the top of the towers of Notre Dame, one could see the head of the Russian columns appear like the first undulations of the tide of the sea upon a beach. I felt what a Roman must have experienced when, from the ridge of the capital, he beheld the soldiers of Alaric and the old city of the Latins at his feet, as I beheld the Russian soldiers and, at my feet, the old city of the Gauls. Farewell, then, paternal gods, hearths which preserved the traditions of the country, roofs beneath which had breathed both Virginia, sacrificed by her father to modesty and liberty, and Eloise, consecrated by love to letters and religion. Paris had not since centuries seen the smoke of an enemy's camp, and it was Bonaparte who, from triumph to triumph, brought the Thebans within sight of the women of Sparta. Paris was the bourne from which he had started to conquer the earth. He returned to it, leaving behind him the huge conflagration of his useless conquests. The people rushed to the Jardin des Plantes, which, in olden times, the fortified abbey of St. Victor might have been able to protect. The small world of swans and plantain trees, to which our power had promised an eternal peace, was perturbed. From the summit of the labyrinth, looking over the great cedar, over the public granaries which Bonaparte had not had time to complete, beyond the site of the Bastille and the keep of Vincennes, spots which told the tale of our successive history, the crowd watched the infantry fire in the combat of Belleville. Montmartre was carried. The cannonballs fell as far as the boulevard du Temple. A few companies of the National Guard made a sortie and lost three hundred men in the fields around the tomb of the martyrs. Never did military France, in the midst of her reverses, shine with a brighter glory. The last heroes were the one hundred and fifty lads of the Polytechnic School, transformed into gunners in the redoubts on the Vincennes Road. Surrounded by the enemy, they refused to surrender. They had to be torn from their pieces. The Russian grenadier seized them, blackened with gunpowder and covered with wounds. While they struggled in his arms, he lifted those young French palm branches in the air with cries of victory and admiration, and restored them all bleeding to their mothers. During that time, Camaceres was fleeing with Marie-Louise, the King of Rome, and the Regency. The following proclamation was read on the walls. King Joseph, Lieutenant-General of the Emperor, Commander-in-Chief of the National Guard, Citizens of Paris. The Council of Regency has provided for the safety of the Empress and the King of Rome. I remain with you. Let us arm ourselves to defend this town, its monuments, its riches, our wives, our children, all that is dear to us. Let this far city become a camp for a short while, and let the enemy meet with his disgrace under its walls, which he hopes to surmount in triumph. Rostopchin did not pretend to defend Moscow. He burnt it down. Joseph announced that he would never leave the Parisians, and privately decamped, leaving his courage placarded at the street corners. Monsieur de Talleyrand made one of the regency appointed by Napoleon. Since the day on which the Bishop of Autun, under the Empire, ceased to be Minister of Foreign Affairs, he had dreamt of but one thing, the disappearance of Bonaparte followed by the regency of Marie-Louise, a regency of which he, the Prince de Benevent, would have been the head. Bonaparte, in appointing him a member of a provisional regency in 1814, seemed to have favoured his secret wishes. The Napoleonic death had not occurred. There remained for Monsieur de Talleyrand but to hobble at the feet of the colossus whom he was unable to overthrow, and to turn the moment to account on his own behalf. The genius of that man of bargains and compromises lay in contriving. The position presented difficulties. To remain in the capital was the obvious cause, but, if Bonaparte returned, the prince, separated from the fugitive regency, the prince, lagging behind, ran the risk of being shot. On the other hand, how to abandon Paris at the moment when the Allies might be entering it? Would it not be to forego the profits of success, 
to betray that morrow of events for which M. de Talleyrand was made, so far from leaning towards the Bourbons, he feared them by reason of his various apostasies. However, since there was some sort of chance for them, M. de Vitrol, with the assent of the married prelate, had stealthily repaired to the Congress of Chatillon as the unavowed whisperer of the legitimacy. Having taken this precaution, the prince, in order to get clear of his difficulties in Paris, had recourse to one of those tricks of which he was a past master. M. de Laborie, who, soon after, became confidential secretary to the provisional government under M. Dupont de Nemours, went to M. de Laborde, who was attached to the National Guard, and revealed the fact of M. de Talleyrand's departure. He is preparing, said he, to follow the regency. It will perhaps appear necessary to you to arrest him, in order to be in a position to negotiate with the Allies, if need be. The comedy was played to perfection. The prince's carriages were ostentatiously got ready. He started at broad noonday on the 30th of March. On reaching the Barrière d'Enfer, he was inexorably sent back home, in spite of his protestations. In case of a miraculous return, the proofs were there, showing that the ex-minister had tried to join Marie-Louise, and that the armed force had prevented his passage. Meantime, on the advent of the Allies, the Comte Alexandre de Laborde and M. Tocton, superior officers of the National Guard, had been sent to the Generalissimo, Prince von Schwarzenberg, who had been one of Bonaparte's generals during the Russian campaign. The Generalissimo's proclamation was made known in Paris on the evening of the 30th of March. It said, For twenty years Europe has been inundated with blood and tears. The attempts made to put an end to all these sufferings have been useless, because the very principle of the government by which you are oppressed contains an insurmountable obstacle to peace. Parisians, you know the situation in which your country is placed. The preservation and the tranquillity of your city will be the object of the cares of the Allies. It is with these sentiments that Europe, in arms before your walls, addresses herself to you. What a magnificent acknowledgment of France's greatness! Europe in arms before your walls addresses herself to you. We, who had respected nothing, were respected by those whose towns we had ravaged and who, in their turn, had become the stronger. We appeared as a sacred nation in their eyes. Our lands were to them as a field of Ellis, upon which, by order of the gods, no battalion dared trample. If, notwithstanding, Paris had thought fit to offer a resistance, very easily made, of four-and-twenty hours, the results would have been changed, but nobody, except the soldiers intoxicated with fire and glory, wanted any more Bonaparte, and, dreading lest they should keep him, the people hastened to open the gates. Paris capitulated on the 31st of March. The military capitulation is signed, in the names of Marshals Mortier and Marmont, by Colonels Denis and Favier. The civil capitulation was made in the names of the mayors of Paris. The municipal and departmental council sent a deputation to the Russian headquarters to arrange the several clauses. My companion in exile, Christian de la Mognon, was one of the delegates. Alexander said to them, your emperor, who was my ally, came into the very heart of my states to bring with him evils of which the traces will long remain. A just defence has brought me here. I am far from wishing to return to France the wrongs which she has done me. I am just, and I know that the French are not to blame. The French are my friends, and I wish to prove to them that I have come to return good for evil. Napoleon is my only enemy. I promise my special protection to the city of Paris. I shall protect and preserve all public institutions. I shall let only pick troops remain there. I shall preserve your National Guard, which is composed of the pick of your citizens. It is for yourselves to ensure your happiness in the future. You must give yourselves a government which will procure your repose and that of Europe. It is for you to express your wish. You will always find me ready to second your efforts. These words were punctually fulfilled. 
the joy of victory surmounted every other interest in the eyes of the Allies. What must have been Alexander's feelings when he caught sight of the domes of the buildings of that town where no foreigner had ever entered, except to admire us, to revel in the marvels of our civilization and our intelligence, of that inviolable city, defended by its great men during twelve centuries, of that glorious capital which Louis XIV seems still to protect with his shade, and Bonaparte with his return. End of Books 1 and 2